Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to be here. We're so thankful to be a part of this church. We're so, we're so thankful for your grace and mercy and for your healing power. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here this morning to bless us and to help us understand and see your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. When we ended yesterday, I was uh, mentioning that attempts are being made today by ecumenical zealots to reverse the course of Protestant history and actually undo the past 500 years rather than continue to shine that light that was lit in Wittenberg in 1517 and as Ellen White said was intended to increase in brightness to the close of time. I was so thrilled to read that statement by Mrs. White because I, believe, I have believed for a long time that the Reformation is not over. It never was intended to be over. Why not? Because the issue is the same today Amen. that it was 500 years ago. God's people and the world need to hear again Luther's great ringing testimony when he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And by the way, there are some historical revisionists that even doubt whether he said that. And the reason they doubt it is because they wish he hadn't said it. <laughs> but fortunately, there were a number of people present at the time that wrote down his words. On that great declaration, my conscience is captive to the word of God, rested the Protestant faith. Ellen White says, referring to Luther, one man opposed to the mightiest powers on earth. One man. Great Controversy 117. When she refers to the mightiest powers on earth, she's referring to both secular and ecclesiastic power. And by the way, when you read in detail the history of the Reformation, 
it wasn't all pleasant on the Protestant side either. I mean, there were people that were being executed by the Roman Catholic authorities for their faith, and there were also people executed among the Protestants, by Protestants, for their faith. The radical reformers, or some of them were called evangelicals. So it wasn't a very pleasant time either. Anyway, on October 31, 1517 is the date when the light was kindled. Almost three years later, on June 15, 1520, Pope Leo X issued his condemnation of Luther. It was entitled in Latin, Exurge Domini, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. Arise, O Peter, arise, O Paul. That's the way it began. And Luther was given 60 days by the Pope to submit to papal authority and to recant, or he would be declared anathema, cursed, and excommunicated from the church. And in a letter to the elector Frederick of Saxony, a secular authority, the Saxony was the province where the University of Wittenberg was located, the Pope referred to Luther as a son of iniquity and a scabby sheep and ordered the elector that if Luther persists, the Pope says, in his madness to, quote, take him captive. Notice, the Pope ordered the secular authority, the elector of Saxony, to take him captive. So, summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was the major secular authority, to appear at the Diet of Worms on September 7, 1521, that simple monk, the son of a miner, peasant miner, stood, can you imagine it, picture it in your mind, stood before the emperor and the representatives of the papacy, and he stood there all alone to answer for his faith, with nothing to sustain him but the word of God. 
It was one of those divine moments in history. And Luther was not intimidated by the fact that he stood before the emperor and the papal representatives, but he was overwhelmed by the truth that he and the emperor were both answerable to God. And he defended himself admirably. Answering every charge with reference to the scriptures. But it wasn't enough. Because Emperor Charles V was descended from a long line of Catholic monarchs. And furthermore, politically, he needed the goodwill of the Pope. And so the emperor's edict was this, quote, Luther is to be regarded as a convicted heretic. When the time is up, 21 days, no one is to harbor him. His followers also are to be condemned His books are to be eradicated from the memory of man." Unquote. Now, what was it that brought, a, brought, brought down upon that lone man the full ecclesiastical power of the papacy as well as the temporal power of the emperor? Well, it all began in the Augustinian cloister at Wittenberg with Luther's personal search for forgiveness and his discovery of the gospel that had been buried under centuries of ecclesiastical tradition. And when he found the good news, the inevitable consequence was the peeling away from, of all of those traditions like you peel away the layers of an onion. He had become a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg, but his theology did not begin with books or with reflection on the reflections of others, but with his own personal search for peace with God. He had a very sensitive conscience and he, and he felt that he couldn't satisfy God's standards of righteousness even though he was outwardly busy and productive preparing lectures and teaching classes. Inwardly he was experiencing a turmoil of guilt. And he tried every resource that was available by church tradition 
in order to find relief from that turmoil. He tried good works. And he discovered that he, he could never do enough to make himself worthy. He sought the merits of the so-called saints. And he ended with doubt that they could help him at all. He tried penance, going so far as to scourge himself with a, with a whip. And penance required that the sinner confess all wrongdoing and seek absolution from a priest. So he confessed frequently, sometimes many times a day, he went to the priest to confess. Sometimes he confessed to the priest for up to six hours. Drove the priest crazy. <laughs> you see, every sin, in order to be absolved, had to be confessed. So the soul must be searched, memory ransacked, motives probed, and sometimes when he was in confession he would review his whole life and then fearing that he had forgotten something important he would start all over again. And his problem was not whether his sins were big or small but whether, but whether they had been adequately confessed. That was his problem. He, he worried that he had not remembered them all and that because he hadn't remembered them, they were, they were unconfessed. And so he thought, those sins are still condemning me. And he was deathly afraid that his memory protected his ego. He was frightened because even after six hours of confession, he could still think of something that had escaped his memory. Can you imagine the mental torture he went through? He had become his own accuser. And he was relentless. The church had taught him that in order for sins to be forgiven, every one of them must be diligently confessed. Now what was the problem? In order to be confessed, the sins must be recognized and remembered. If they're not recognized and remembered, they cannot be confessed. And if they are not confessed, they cannot be forgiven. You see? And so slowly, Luther began to realize 
that the whole penitential system fails because it is concerned with particular sins rather than with the sinful nature of the sinner. For those people who were troubled by sins, the church offered forgiveness through the penitential system, the ministry of priests, and the mass, but that forgiveness was contingent upon conditions that Luther found to be unattainable. Fasting and prayer didn't help him. Love God, he was told. But how, how can you love a God that was seen as an angry, judging, damning, consuming fire? And so he fled from what he perceived to be the angry son of God to the merciful mother of God. But that didn't work either. And so he began to wrestle with two alternatives. One, either God is capricious changeable, and the fate of human beings is unpredictable. In other words, God cannot be relied upon, and whatever will be, will be. That we call fatalism. That's one alternative that he had. The second one was, God is malicious and human destiny is already determined. In other words, the lost are lost, whatever they do, and the saved are saved, no matter what they do. And that ended up being referred to as double predestination. Could you say that one more time? Which even some later Protestants fell into. You want me to repeat that? God is malicious and human destiny is already determined because the lost are lost, whatever they do, and the saved are saved no matter what they do. So you have double predestination. And so he cried out, I wish I had never been born. Love God, he says, I hate him. I wish it was at that point in his spiritual agony that another divine moment happened. Johann von Staupitz, who was the vicar of the Augustinian order, appointed him to be a teacher, preacher, and a counselor of sick souls. Staupitz felt that Luther would be helped by the demands of teaching. That was wise. 
and of all things made him professor of Bible. I think I mentioned that yesterday. And Staupitz had no idea of the ultimate consequences of that appointment. Would you say that God used Staupitz? Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, I would. <laughs> and so very slowly in his agonizing search, Luther began to realize that, it, that it's the nature of the human being that is corrupt. And that it is the whole person that is in need of forgiveness. To focus on particular sins only leads to despair. It is the inner nature of man that needs to be changed, transformed. And he began to see God as a God of love. And for him, the avenging Christ became the redeeming Christ. And it was Luther's meditation on the cross that convinced him that God is neither capricious nor malicious. One phrase from dear Paul, as he called him, was enough to lift his own spiritual burden. And it was the spark that kindled the light of the Reformation. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. The just, righteous, shall live by faith. At that moment, he had experienced a new birth. He was a changed man. The power was in the word. And that kind of good news has to be shared with others. He could not keep silent. Faith is not an achievement, but a gift. A gift that comes through the hearing and study of the Word of God. And this is the mission of the church. Such good news has to be shared with others. Ellen White says that its rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth. An increase in brightness to the close of time. That mission has not ended. And Luther writes like this, he says this, he said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. 
this passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And so it's no wonder that justification by faith alone became the heart of Luther's theology. What came after that was, everything that came after was a sharpening and a, an application of that. And his, as I mentioned yesterday, his intention was the reforming of the church. The restoration of apostolic Christianity. And that was a noble goal, to reform the church. Would you agree? Yes. But it didn't happen. Why not? Because the church would not yield to the truth of the word that Luther had uncovered. And so the wild boar was kicked out by the Pope. His German translation of the Bible was burned, as well as his own writings. And Luther discovered in the process that an apostate church cannot be reformed. It will not be reformed. Why not? Think about that. Because if the Bible is rejected in favor of such things as human reason, tradition, culture, which is the big temptation today, follow culture, there is no basis for genuine reformation. Ellen White called Luther a champion of truth. And so having uncovered the core of the biblical faith, Luther and the other reformers began to peel away the layers of tradition and by doing that threatened the power of the institutional church over the lives of the people. That was what the problem was as far as the papacy was concerned. The pretensions of the church that rested on the sacraments, the priesthood, the mass, and the primacy of the pope were all exposed as false.
first of all, were five of the seven Catholic sacraments established not by Christ, but by the tradition of the church. And if we're saved by grace through faith, then these are no longer needed as exclusive channels of grace. The removal of confirmation as a sacrament, an extreme unction as a sacrament, that is the anointing of the dead or people that are dying. The elimination of those reduce the control of the church over youth and over death. And the elimination of penance, confession to and absolution by a priest, threatened the control of the priesthood over the human conscience. God alone absolves people of sin. And he does that because of the cross of Christ. And the elimination of ordination as a sacrament demolished the caste system of the priesthood and opened the way for the renewal of the biblical priesthood of all believers. Next was the sacrifice of the Mass, during which the bread and the wine supposedly actually become the body and blood of Christ. It's called the doctrine of, the, of transubstantiation. The actual substance of the bread and wine is transformed, changed into something else by the words that are uttered by the priest when the wafer is elevated and the chalice is elevated in the mass. And the priest performed the miracle, it still goes on, of reenacting the Calvary sacrifice every day by exercising the power supposedly conferred upon him by the sacrament of ordination. Yeah. But the Bible says that the death he died, he died to sin once, once for all. Doesn't have to be repeated every day on the altar of a church. Romans 6.10. The difference between clergy and laity is rooted right here. As was also the superiority of the church over the state. No layman 
be he king or emperor, could exercise that kind of power that the church claimed for itself. A, a priest may offer a sinner a piece of bread, but the priest cannot give the sinner the gift of faith. which is the inevitable corollary of the righteous shall live by faith, was that the superiority of the Roman church was destroyed forever. The wild boar, as the Pope referred to Luther, destroyed the illusion of papal supremacy for half of Europe. And the fundamental issue became Christ versus Antichrist. You see, while Luther found Christ in the Bible, on the basis of what he learned from the Bible, he found Antichrist in the church. And he identified that Antichrist as the papal system. He focused his study on the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, which led him to the inescapable conclusion that the papal system is the Antichrist power. Christ, not Peter, is the rock upon which, upon which rests the true church. And in his treatise entitled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, it was published in 1520, Luther wrote for everybody to read this, the papacy is in truth nothing else than the kingdom of Babylon and of the very Antichrist, unquote. And so with his study of Bible prophecy completed and with that conviction in his heart, Luther was standing fearlessly before Emperor Charles V and the papal representatives at the Diet of Worms on April 18, 1521. But no discussion of his view was permitted. Instead, he was pressured to repudiate and revoke his views. And he courageously refused when he said, I cannot and I will not recant because my conscience is captive to the word of God. I am conquered by the holy scriptures.
Here I stand. God help me. That was the issue then, and it is the issue today, 500 years later. In 1531, over 20 years after the Reformation, he wrote, quote, not until I am gone will they, the papists, feel Luther's weight. He was right, of course, as subsequent history has proven. But what about today? What has happened to the Reformation? Remember Ellen White's words concerning the light that was kindled in Wittenberg and which was to increase in brightness to the close of time. Is it increasing or decreasing? At the heart of the Reformation was what some have referred to as the battle between the Roman Church and the Reformers for the sole authority of the Bible. Today, 500 years later, the battle for sola scriptura is being waged within Protestantism. And we are a part of it. And that is what I hope this seminar makes vivid in your minds. Today, we are faced with the fact that many mainline Protestant churches are in the process of abandoning the basic premise of the Reformation, sola scriptura. And while that is true, we need to remember that there are a lot of good people in those mainline Protestant churches. But they have no idea of what is happening. I meet them occasionally. people that are actually members of my former <coughs> church that I pastored. And I questioned them. And they don't have a clue. They don't know. So we've reached a point where it is, it is being said that the Reformation was a mistake. Some are saying that it was just the opinion of one man and is over, and that's not true. 
study Reformation history, and there were a lot of people involved in the Reformation. There were many reformers, not just one. He just happened to kindle it, light it. Last October in 2016, the present pope made a trip to Sweden and together with the Archbishop of the Lutheran Church of Sweden, shared in a joint service of commemoration of the Reformation. Not celebration, but commemoration. Big difference. In that kind of a context, we need to hear these perceptive, prescient words of Ellen White written 130 years ago. Listen, quote, the experience of these noble reformers contains a lesson for all succeeding ages. In our times, that's 130 years ago, in our times there is a wide departure from doctrines and precepts, scriptural, and there is a need of a return to the great Protestant principle the Bible and the Bible only as the rule of faith and duty. Amen. The same unswerving adherence to the word of God manifested at that crisis of the Reformation is the only hope of reform today. Great Controversy, pages 204 and 205. Now, this I want to underline. What, what she says there, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, is not only our religious heritage, It is our message and mission. It's our mandate today. Quote, to the close of time. That's why this year is so important. And by the way, the next quarter's, the next quarter's Sabbath school lesson is on the book of Galatians. Ending just before October 31. Pardon? Yeah. By design. Yeah. 
Now, following his defense before the Emperor Charles V on September 17, 1521, Luther left the city of Worms, intending to return to Wittenberg and his work at the university. But remember that he was under the condemnation of both the Pope and the Emperor. He was excommunicated from the church, declared outlaw by the emperor, and it was against the law to protect him or give him sanctuary. His followers were condemned, his books burned, he was in danger for his life. And he shrugged that danger off, but Frederick, the elector of Saxony, uh, he didn't, he, as far as the emperor was concerned, the whole thing was political. All of the delegates attending the Diet at Worms, both Catholics and supporters of Luther, had to vote on the, the emperor's condemnation. But he didn't sign it, the emperor didn't sign it, until Luther's report, supporters had left Worms. And then he signed it on May 6th. This was an obvious political manipulation of the situation until the emperor and the pope got what they wanted. And here was a situation in which church and state united to enforce a religious decree. Here was a secular tribunal entrusted with a case of alleged religious heresy and whose judgment became law. It, it had happened before that many times and it's happened since a union of church and state to enforce a religious law. And it can happen again, given the time, the opportunity, and the circumstance. And this concept of the union of church and state in Catholic theology was called Corpus Christianum, or body of Christians. And it meant that church and society were indivisibly one. Also, it meant that the authority of the church superseded the authority of the state. And to that authority, the state has to bow. Unfortunately, Luther himself held to Corpus Christianum, as did Ulrich Zwingli, one of the other reformers in Switzerland. And in this, Luther's reform did not go far enough. It remained for others as the Reformation developed over the decades to reject this idea of the union of church and state. 
which ultimately led to the First Amendment in the Constitution of the United States. And there are voices today who want to change that and who are actually saying that the Constitution doesn't say what it says. Well, the curious thing was that it was Luther's followers that had appealed his case to the emperor. And the Catholics opposed that appeal. They wanted the emperor to refer the matter to the pope. But when it was resolved against Luther, the Catholics approved it because it affirmed for them the Catholic faith as well as the power of the papacy and the authority of the church. The Lutherans, as the followers of Luther began to be called, opposed it because it went against them. You know, what would have happened if the vote at Worms had favored Luther? Such an outcome would also have constituted a union of sorts between the power of the state and the power of the church to enforce a Protestant religious decree. At any rate, Elector Frederick, who was Luther's friend, wanted to protect him. And he arranged to have Luther abducted on his way back to Wittenberg. Passing through some woods, his wagon was attacked by armed horsemen. And with a lot of shouting and a great show of violence, Luther was dragged to the ground, put on a horse. He was taken by roundabout roads to the ancient Wartburg Castle because and, and Frederick didn't want to know where Luther was hidden so that he could deny knowledge of where he was. And Luther spent a year there at Wartburg and alone he suffered from insomnia and depression and the cure he adopted was work because idleness is the devil's playground. Did you know that? He translated the New Testament into German and wrote about a dozen other books. And near the end of that year, the town council in Wittenberg begged him to return, deeply worried and concerned about events in Wittenberg, Luther wrote to Elector Frederick, he said, the devil is at work in this. Why did he say that? What was going on that he considered the work of the devil? His friends in Wittenberg had kept him informed that the Reformation was moving with great speed, almost out of control, and in his absence the leadership was in the hands of his friend and colleague, Philip Melanchthon, who was the professor of Greek, and another one by the name of Andreas Karlstadt, a professor of theology. And one change was rapidly following after another. 
priests and nuns were getting married. Wine in communion was given to the people. The, the bread was placed in their own hands when they attended communion. They, they went to communion without prior confession. Priests conducted services in plain clothes instead of in Eucharistic vestments. Mass was no longer seen as a sacrifice. German rather than Latin was used in the Mass. The Mass for the dead was ended. And enrollment dropped in the university because students were, were no longer supported by church stipends. Monks began to leave the cloisters. Until then, the Reformation had affected only the theologians and the clergy. But with this kind of rapid changes, the people began to realize that the Reformation really meant something significant. It was not just a debate among scholars, but it influenced their daily lives. And while Luther supported change like this, he worried that things would get out of hand. And they sure did. What concerned him the most was that they would lose sight of the gospel and get sidetracked on peripheral issues. And the worst of it was some violence that had erupted in Wittenberg against Catholic people. And by the way, they were called the old believers. People with knives hidden under their cloaks invaded the church and drove out the priests. Stones were thrown at people who were kneeling and saying the rosary. Altars were overturned, images and pictures smashed. And Luther blamed a lot of it on Karlstad, who had preached some rather inflammatory sermons while he was in Wartburg. And it was Karlstad's opinion that organs and trumpets and flutes were to be thrown out also. And so the elector was in a dilemma. He was responsible for the peace of the, you know, the province and everything was going crazy. He was responsible for peace on the one hand, but as a Christian, he was also concerned about the true faith. He was in a dilemma. He was, re he was afraid that if Luther came back, more riots would be incited and, and Luther himself would be in danger. And so he told Luther, you stay in Wartburg. But Luther wanted to return and he did. He wrote to Frederick, he said, I cannot yield an inch to the devil. He believed that the very future of the Reformation was at stake, people being people. They were rioting, destroying church property, 
threatening the lives of priests and, and of people who chose to remain Catholic. And that kind of behavior was not consistent with the gospel. You don't treat people like that when they don't agree with you. Christian liberty did not mean the right to threaten or harm people because of their religious beliefs. He saw, Luther saw that kind of behavior as rebellion against God. And first thing he had to do was to restore confidence and order. And so he claimed his pulpit in the, in the castle church and in a memorable sermon with a voice like honey, not loud and bombastic, he urged the congregation to practice love, patience, and consideration for others. And he told the congregation, which was almost a whole town, that no person can die for another person. No one can believe for another, and no one can answer for another. Every person must be persuaded in his own mind. No one can be intimidated or coerced into belief. Smashing images and dragging priests out of the church was a great blow to the principles of the Reformation, Luther said. And he pleaded to give people time. He said, violence betrays a lack of confidence in God. And he reminded them that all he had done was pray and preach. The word of God did it all, he said. Through that means alone, he said, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. Then he said, let us preach, the rest belongs to God. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. He also told him to rebuke. How do you rebuke? You do that by preaching the word. The word does the rebuking, not the preacher. And he said, God does more by his word alone than you and I and all the world by our united strength. God lays hold upon the heart, and when the heart is taken, all is one. And so it took an act of bravery to leave the protection of Wartburg and go back to Wittenberg, but it took an even greater act of bravery to admonish his own followers at such a critical moment. Everything that he had worked for, everything the Lord had accomplished through him, 
was on the verge of being destroyed. And his own life and his faith were on the line. You see, the gospel is not just something to believe with the intellect, but with the heart. It is something to be lived. Those who have been justified by God's grace alone are to live as justified people. To live like Christ. So his role had dramatically changed. With his teaching and preaching, he had been tearing down false doctrine and ecclesiastical tradition, and now he must, using the same means, lead in the building up of a new pattern of church and society. Once again, he faced down the devil, using that powerful principle of sola scriptura to do it. It gave credibility to Luther and to the Reformation when he stuck to the word of God, to his conscience, and to principles that are based on that word. He adopted Christ's method. In the way he dealt with the riots and the tumult that followed in the Reformation. All right. Comments? Yes. Yes, sir. Where does Tom and Thomas Munzer fit into this whole um, thing as the revolution begins? Well, Munzer was one of the reformers who ended up giving his life. But he wasn't the only one, there were others. I haven't looked very deeply into his, his life. I know he was a part of it, but there were others like Zwingli, John Calvin, uh, some of them were called Anabaptists, some of them were called Evangelicals, <coughs> some of them were called Mennonites because they followed the teachings of a man by the name of Menno Simmons. Simons. So Luther wasn't alone. He's just the one that lit the fire. And then it spread like wildfire. And there were many different opinions in the whole Reformation movement. And that's what ended up in the development of denominations that looked at things in a little different way 
that emphasized one practice over another? Two things. Didn't finances precipitate a lot of the problems with the Reformation? When finances. 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 When the Catholic Church needed money, that's why they were sending out their indulgences. Yeah. And the Reformation took hold. It dried up that financial resource. Yeah. Didn't that <coughs> move things along from the Catholic side? Oh, well, that, that was very disturbing, too, you know, to the established church. Second thing, although Luther, Martin Luther, <coughs> rethought the Mass and the, the transu transubstantiation, didn't that still bother him for a long time? I'm thinking of his arguments with Calvin about, about what happened with the bread and the wine. And they had this council and he, he, he very dramatically wrote on the table, this is my body. Did his views on that ever change? Well, you know, things got so bad in various places, like, for example, Strasbourg and uh, Geneva, with respect to the Protestant differences. And they were tempted also to unite with the power of the state and you had Protestants persecuting Protestants and even burning Protestants. It reached the point where in England, when the Reformation got to England, you had one monarch who was a Catholic who burned Protestants and another monarch who was a Protestant are a Catholic who burned Protestants and a Protestant who burned Catholics. That's the way it was. It's terrible. A lot of people don't know that. Well, one of the best sources that I know of is that book that I recommended on Monday. Some of you didn't get that, I suppose, if you weren't here on Monday. It's going to be in the ABC Pardon? At the end of the week. I yeah, I understand that the ABC is going to have some copies. Let me get it and share it with you again. The title of it is The Reformation and the Advent Movement. There is a lot of information in here that relative to some of the questions that you have already raised. The author's name is W.L. Emerson. Published by Orion Publishing. O-R-I-O-N located in Ukiah, California. Copyright 2010. 
2001. There's a lot of good information in here. Okay, someone else? Yes. Is there any open communication channels now in the spirit of Reformation that our Adventist church is making to other Protestants and to the Catholic church? Is there an effort being made currently? Well, I know that we don't participate in the official ecumenical movement. But I do know that we have official representatives on committees or groups that are doing things, uh, even in the government, you know, with religious, dealing with religious issues. So how do you think that we should celebrate the Reformation this 500th year? How do you think, what is the appropriate response for us? To do things like we're doing here in this seminar? Expose the truth about the Reformation to everybody that we can? and uphold the Word of God like we should in our preaching, in our teaching, in our literature, in our official publications, in tracts and other literature that we pass out to people. I almost hate to say this, but in the years that I've been an Adventist minister, I've discovered a lot of Adventist laymen who do not have knowledge concerning our own history. The same was true when I was a Lutheran. The average lay pe person is ignorant of all of this because they're not being exposed to it. I want to make a comment here and I don't want it to get on here on this recording. But when I was a member of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee, that met four times in Baltimore. I was invited by Elder Wilson to sit with him and a group of others at lunch because I had mentioned to him that the Adventist Church needs to uh, make a major acknowledgement of the Reformation and its effect. 
And so we, we sat at dinner and discussed this. And I urged him, I don't know if that was effective or not, but I, what, one of the things I said was that every institution of learning, every university, every academy, every evangelistic outreach, television, radio, uh, our Sabbath school lessons, they all should have a major focus on the Reformation during this year. Now, I have no idea how far that went. He agreed with me, but he has to deal with people, you know, committees and so on. But I was happy to learn that next quarter's lessons are, are going to be on the book of Galatians. And I would hope that others like Bohr and uh, Doug Batchelor and Bradshaw and others would begin to focus on it now. When you were a Lutheran pastor, what exactly did you do to, um, to encourage a celebration of the Reformation? And would that be something that our churches could consider doing every year to invite other denominations to come in and to study together the Reformation? Why not? Well, back then, it was the custom in all Lutheran churches to focus on Reformation Sunday, which was close to October 31, and have special services. I did every year. Now you don't even hear of them. In fact, I think I mentioned the other day that I asked a pastor that's now serving that church if they're planning to do anything, and and he said, uh, his response was interesting. He said, I've been trying to convince the, the local priests that we should get together and celebrate it. And, you know, my... <laughs> this media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.